Well, it's the last hour of power from the Biz News team for the week. Uh, this being Thursday, the 21st of October. Remember, we're off air, uh, certainly with the power hour on Friday. However, on FMR in Cape Town, you can listen to Carrie's Corner, our focus on the wine industry and how important that is for the Western Cape. Tonight, we have got some <laughs> really good interviews for you. Most unusual, we are pulling in Gideon Rachman. He is the Financial Times of London's Chief International Correspondent, and he traveled all the way to the United States to go and meet with Professor Paul Kennedy from Yale University to talk about the competition between the U.S. and China and where that's going to be ending up in the future. That comes right at the end of the program, so you can't go anywhere, I'm afraid. You're going to just have to stay with us until those last uh, 12 minutes or so. It's a well worth waiting for. Uh, Before that, we will be hearing from as per always, on Thursday, my colleague Justin Rowe Roberts had a terrific interview with him. It's always great value, isn't it, Justin, when you talk with Pitt? Exactly, Alec, and especially when there's so much JSC-listed news coming out. Avenge, um, Bernard Swanepoel was just appointed to the Avenge board. Avenge, obviously, one of Pitfull Yun's twigs that he holds, and he's very excited about what Bernard can bring from a mining side. Of course, Avenge is a construction company. However, they do have mining interests. So Mr. Swanepoel will certainly be adding his value there, or at least according to Mr. Fuyun. Well, there's no doubt. Bernard is a very shrewd operator. And uh, he, when he joined the Omnia board, I remember thinking, mm, maybe this is a signal that I should also be buying shares in the company. And then when he bo- uh, joined the Impala Platinum board, had we followed him into that one, we'd also be looking very good. So maybe there's your big buy signal on Avenge. We'll be hearing more, as uh, Justin mentioned, from Pitt and Justin a little later, uh, just after the uh, market report, which of course comes up uh, next. Then we will be hearing from Franz Cronier. I had a lengthy interview with him earlier in the week. The first part of the interview was to talk about his trip to KwaZulu-Natal. Uh, the second part of that interview, which we'll hear tonight, is the polls. What's going on? Who's going to? What are the polls saying is going to happen in the local elections? Well, in the Western Cape, it's kind of a foregone conclusion. But on uh, the uh, on on the hustings here in Gauteng, and particularly in Johannesburg, it really is a tight run thing. And uh, Franz Cronier says that it's it's going to be a tough. Uh, if the ANC were to win, it would be a big shock in Johannesburg. However, uh, we will be talking to the mayor of Johannesburg, recently appointed Mpo Morani. That's our colleague Tim Modise, uh, to get an insight into what he would do if he were to win the election uh, and be, and remain mayor of Johannesburg after the 1st of November. So France is painting one picture, which comes from all the polls, uh, and watch out for that uh, fascinating uh, suggestion that he makes, or, or uh, he goes back into Sarah Palin and explains what how she uh, described polls. And then we'll hear immediately after France, that interview with our colleague Tim Modise and Mpo Morani, the incumbent mayor, we will be talking to the DA's candidate uh, on on uh, yes. In fact, they're going to be the interview will be conducted tomorrow, but we will be talking with her. Uh, you'll be hearing her on Monday, rather. And then, Justin, you've got another interview with Jean-Pierre Fester. Um after pick and pay's results yesterday. Very topical. What's going on in the retail sector? 
Exactly. Uh, pick and pay the first food retailer to announce results after the July riots. Of course, there was a big impact from not only a store perspective, but also their distribution centers, which were affected. And some of the biggest brands in South Africa, we're talking ShopRite, Woolies, Pick and Pay and Spa. Jean-Pierre says, although Woolies pricing is a little bit ridiculous, they do have pricing power and therefore as an investment proposition, it's something to look at. So don't buy their biltong, but you can buy their shares. Something like that. Jared Neves has been having a look at what's going on within the BizNews ecosystem. So the most accessed stories on the BizNews platforms on our website, biznews.com. Herman Mashaba to breathe fire into the city of Johannesburg. Johan Rupert's listed empire, Remgro, Richmond and Janet. And Tungela's wild ride as transient woes continue unabated are among the top read stories. On BizNews TV, on YouTube... David Shapiro on Insider Trading, Yesterday's Flash Briefing, and Magnus Haystack on Regulation 28 are the most popular videos with our community members. And on Business Radio on Spotify, Franz Krunier on KwaZulu-Natal after the riots, Yesterday's Power Hour, and Armored Vehicles no longer for VIPs, private citizens are looking for alternative protection in SA with the best listened to podcasts on Business Radio. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. I'm Claire Bardnost and here are today's news headlines. South Africa has recorded a daily average of just 637 new COVID-19 cases over the past week. The last time the country saw levels of infection this low was during the early stages of the pandemic in May 2020, less than three months after the country's first case was detected. Hospital admissions and COVID-19 deaths are also drastically down. According to the National Institute for Communicable Diseases, Fewer than 5,000 people were in hospital with COVID-19 by Tuesday, a drop of around 65% in two months. However, while South Africa sees a drastic reduction in cases, other parts of the world are seeing a resurgence. Europe has an infection rate of 233 new daily cases per million people, up more than 50% over the past month. Cases in the United Kingdom are also on the rise with a seven-day rolling average of new daily cases at 651 per million people, one of the highest rates in the world. Scientists around the world are closely tracking a descendant of the highly infectious Delta variant that has been found in both the UK and the US. The new variant, known as AY.4.2, is said to be 10% more infectious than its predecessor, though cases are still very low. Former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb says that while the new variant isn't an immediate cause for concern, urgent research is required to determine whether it is more infectious or able to avoid the body's immune response. Hours after announcing it had reached a landmark wage agreement with striking sector workers, the Steel and Engineering Industries Federation of South Africa postponed a media briefing on the matter, saying a new date and time would be announced. SAFSA had previously revised its 4% offer to 6%, but that was rejected by the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa. The union said it would hold a separate briefing where it will give its position on the wage agreement and the future of the strike. According to SAFSA, in the first week alone, the strike cost 100 million rand in lost wages, 
and warned that a protracted strike could be worse than the 2014 strike, which cost the economy 6 billion rand. Well, thanks for that, Claire. Justin Rowe Roberts now has an update for us on the markets. Justin? The JSE All Share Index was lower at 66,100. In the currency markets, the rand was largely flat against all the major currencies to 14 rand 54 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 7 cents to the pound, and 16 rand 93 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,783 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost around 27,500 rand. Brent crude is flat at $84.30 a barrel, and Bitcoin is trading at 950,000 rand per coin. In the financial news, pharmacy group Clicks has reported record-adjusted operating profits for its 2021 financial year, with its wholesale business delivering yet another strong performance and growing its market share to almost a third as sales to private hospitals picked up during South Africa's second and third waves of COVID-19. UPD, which distributes medicines, continues to be a star performer for Clicks, outdoing competitor Discam, whose much newer wholesale medicine division reported its first operating profits in its 2021 financial year. One of UPD's warehouses was looted during the civil unrest that gripped South Africa in July, but it still reported wholesale turnover growth of 15.1% to end August, increasing its market share from 29% to 31% during the year. Chemicals and energy group Sasol says it's also feeling the effects of problems on Transnet's freight rails network, but it's seen the benefits of record coal prices in its first quarter ending September. Mining export sales in the group's first quarter were up 17% year-on-year, despite lower volumes, Sassel said in a production update, with the group hedging up to 80% of its exposure to export contracts to protect margins. Sassel said, however, it was facing logistical issues that were delaying the transport of coal from Secunda to Richards Bay, joining Pierre Tungela in flagging problems on the rail network this week, with that mine on Monday trimming its production guidance as a result. This market report was made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. I'm Justin Rowe Roberts of Biz News, and with me for today's Market Insights is CounterPoint's Pete Fulian. Decorated mining executive Bernard Swanepoel was appointed to Avengers board, effective immediately. What will he bring to the table, and will his mining experience prove valuable in any way? Yeah, I think so. I think experience in any in industry, um, generally and specifically in mining industry, is invaluable. So I, I think he'll bring a lot of experience to the board of Avenge. And given that uh, a large part of the business is providing service to the mining industry, I think that will be invaluable to the to the business. And uh, on top of all the experience, he's also quite a level-headed guy, and I think he'll bring that to the table as well. Executive remuneration aside, when I read through the annual reports, small and mid-cap companies included, the remuneration for non-executive directors does seem a bit ridiculous for attending a handful of meetings throughout the year. As someone that has been on boards, would you tend to agree with this? Yeah, look, uh, there's this whole debate about um, non-execs who's interested to represent, um, and this, this whole king code thing of them having to be independent of uh, shareholders, which I think is ridiculous, to say the least. Um, I think uh, uh, non-executive directors should be representing shareholders. They should be independent of management, very importantly, but representing shareholders' interests. And I think that's got lost in translation somewhere along with all this corporate governance stuff that's happening. Um, and if they're representing the interests of shareholders, uh, you know, I don't think it should be a job that 
pays a lot of money because as soon as you pay a non-exec a lot of money, um, they become dependent on management and they become quite closely in line with management. For as Charlie Munger says, um, whose bed I eat, whose song I sing. Um, so if you're getting paid a lot of money as a non-exec by the company, you are going to look after the interests of the people who are paying you, which is management, uh, and not shareholders who are actually the people you should be looking at. So the, I, I think the this whole thing, um, due to the, the King Code provisions, which I think are wrong, um, and the amount of money some companies, not all companies, some companies pay their non-execs, I think the whole uh, thing has become perverted. But how much homework would you as a non-executive director have to do before attending those specific board meetings, however not, many there are throughout the year? No, a lot. I, I think you need to be diligent and you need to do your work and you need to understand what's in the board pack. And you also need to spend time with the executives of the company to understand what's going on there. So you have a quite a responsible fiduciary position when you become a non-executive director. Um, but, you know, if you get paid too much for that, then I think it perverts uh, what is intended to happen there. And is this remuneration specifically from a non-executive side, is this consistent with sitting on a board of a private like-for-like -like company in terms of the same size, operations, revenue, etc.? It should be consistent. I don't think there's a difference whether you're listed or unlisted. I think in, a, in this environment, there's, there's more bureaucracy, there's more rules and more regulations that you have to adhere to. But your fiduciary responsibility is exactly the same. A few weeks ago, RMH announced that it received an offer for two of its properties, which are at a significant discount to its net asset value or the, or the value which was on its books, an offer of around 40 to 50% discount on this. Is this not the kind of offer that would only be accepted by companies in distressed situations? Because it does seem awfully cheeky. It does seem cheeky, but that is the, uh, roughly the price at which the market is valuing those properties. If you look at RMH, H's share price and you work it through to the underlying properties, you know, the market is valuing those companies at quite a big discount. So I think the uh, offerors just looked at what the market was saying, said, well, we'll go along with that and we'll offer that sort of price for these, for these properties. Um, you know, I, I think the price offered was quite low. They know this property very well. I think some of the related parties there sold those properties to RMH in the first place. So they know this property is quite well. Um, so they knew what they were getting and they were trying to get a bargain as one would do in the market. And it's, you know, it's, uh, it's fine. That's how the market works. The fact that the board of RMH has turned, has turned down the offer, I think, um, speaks highly of RMH so that they want to try and maximize the value. And they're probably ignoring the, what the market is saying about their share price and looking at the underlying fundamental value, which is uh, more important. Clicks released results this morning. Muted growth for a company highly rated by the market. I had an interview with Jean-Pierre Fester that was scheduled for 9 a.m., which subsequently got pushed out 15 minutes due to Jean-Pierre making a trade post the Clicks results. No prizes for guessing which side of the trade Jean-Pierre was on. I assume Clicks wouldn't fall into your hidden value basket, Pet. Uh, no, I don't think there is much hidden value there. Having said that, um, the share price continued to increase despite... Uh, being overvalued for the past few years, uh, in my opinion, being overvalued. Obviously, there's a lot of other people, a lot of people out there that have other opinions. Um, but I think for the sort of growth that companies produced over the past few years, you know, to put it in a price earnings ratio of 35 times, you know, uh, I, I don't understand that. Uh, but having said that, I've been wrong on that share for a few years. 
and luckily I'm not in the shorting business, so I haven't lost money on it. A lot is said on the growth versus value strategy side of investing. Is there not some form of happy medium managers can follow to avoid the long deep periods of out or underperformance for both categories or are managers obliged to simply follow a given mandate? With the benefit of hindsight, there's always something you can do. Um, but uh, with foresight, it's, it's very, very hard. Um, I think uh, different styles perform differently under different market uh, conditions. And that is something one has to live with. I think it's very dangerous uh, to change the style with which you manage money to suit what you think is the current situation. Because uh, if you do that, then I think uh, you're heading it for problems. Um, I think uh, there are many ways to skin the cat. There's not only value, there's not only momentum, there's, there's growth, there's all sorts of different styles. The important thing is you pick a style or a process which makes sense, which works over the medium to long term, and with which you are psychologically comfortable, in other words, with which you can stick over time. Because that's the important thing is the consistency of the process, not necessarily what the process is, because as I said, there's many different ways to skin the cat. There's not only one correct way. Are there any particular commodities an investor wants exposure to at the moment, given the current environment and the volatility of the last few months in the commodity space? Sure. Yeah, the commodity space has been quite interesting. Um, I, I do think that uh, longer term, the commodity that I would be the most bullish on is oil or energy uh, per se. Um, I think the energy market as a whole has been underinvested in over the past five to ten years, um, and that means that there is less and less of that commodity coming out the ground as time goes by. And the demand, the global demand for energy is not declining. In fact, if anything, over the next five to 10 years, it will definitely increase. Um, and unfortunately, as, as, uh, as good as it sounds or uh, beneficial as it sounds, uh, renewables is not going to make up the gap. Uh, not over that time frame. It will take a long time for us to move from carbon based fuels to renewable energy. Um, uh, and also it will cost a lot of money and I'm not sure there is the appetite for from countries to spend that sort of money on retrofitting their systems to use a renewable energy. Um, so, so I think we, we coming into a crunch time in the next five to ten years where the price of carbon fuels will go up enough to incentivize the companies that produce them or, or extract them uh, to invest more in uh, additional extractive capacity so that we can produce more of them because the world will need more of those going forward. There's no doubt. Lastly, Pitt, work from home. Are you an ambassador or are you in favor of the traditional work setup office environment? This comes at a time where occupancy are the, office occupancies are at the lowest levels they've been ever. They are at low levels, but I am firmly of the opinion that the human being is a social animal. Uh, it's beneficial for humans to be together in a social group. Um, and I think in a workplace, it's even more beneficial because you just walk past somebody, you mention something, somebody picks up on something, um, and and there's a whole network effect that takes place at the office. So I think it's invaluable for people to be together in the office. Whether they need to be in the office uh, 24-7, that's another matter. Um, so I guess I'm sitting, as with many, many things, I'm sitting on the fence here. I think you can spend some of the time at home 
but it's very important that you spend some of the time in the office. So what does that mean in terms of uh, the property environment? I think offices will get smaller. We'll have less formal workplace and more meeting room uh, uh, meeting rooms uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, so the configurations might change. The, the, the demand for office space will no doubt decline. Uh, and I think the property market still needs to work through that over the next few years um, to get rid of the supply, supply glut that is in place at this point in time. Dr. Franz Grenier, the polls, how are we looking for the 1st of November? Sarah Palin, uh, when the McCain campaign came crashing down after her catastrophic interview about what she read, was asked by a journalist, you know, you're falling in the polls. And Palin said polls are for strippers and skiing. So um, polls are, are, are for that, but they are very good if you understand what they are. Firstly, public opinion moves in a wave-like motion from day to day. People don't always hold the same view. Let's say, let's say the weather is very bad and the petrol price has just gone up and the health minister has just been fired because he's in stealing the money. Then confidence in the government and the ANC will be lower than on a day of, of where, where that's not the case. And, and you can probably move in a couple of percentage points in that band. So when you poll, you're testing at a moment in time. The second thing you need to do in understanding the polls is, are these projections of an election result? So turnout scenarios and things are applied to them, or are these just the raw data? What I'm giving you now is the raw data captured somewhere in that bandwidth. The size of your group also gives you a margin of error. So how much might you be off? And the stuff I'm going to give you now, the margin of error is 4%. So it could be 4% high, 4% low. It's probably near the center. We've got the DA on just on kind of 20, 21, 22%. In a client note, I still write one or two of those. Um, my, my advice was I think you've got the DA in the low 20s in this election. 22, 23. There is a view, perhaps, in the DA that it's 24, 25. I think you, you're in the, you're, you're a bit lower than that. Off 27% last time around at local level. And that, and now there is the precedent that when under Musi Maimani's leadership, the DA shrank, there was an inquiry and Musi lost his job. So there is now the real prospect of what happens about John Steenhuisen after this. Will there be an inquiry? The, the ANC, we've got at 50.3%. Uh, and um, it's, for me, amazing. I mean, I, I've been doing this a long time. You know, we used to have the ANC in the 60s. Now it's right on that level. We had them about a year ago at 49 point something. Now we're at 50.3. And, and Ipsos, who are great, they also poll. They, that's what they do. They're a great person, Marie Harris, who does that for them. Ipsos's last two shots on a different methodology to ours it also has the ANC at about 50. So everyone's got the ANC coming in at 50%. DA is in the low 20s. The EFF has, has, on, on, has been moving in a bandwidth of about 11 to 14%. Our sense is that you're probably looking at a number of around 12 so, so now you've got 12 in the EFF, you've got 50-ish in the ANC. That's down from 53 the time before. So now we've got, let's say, 62, 63. We've got the DA at 22, so now we've got 85. Now there's 15. 
That 15 worried me because those are the smaller parties. And over recent elections, they've had 10%. Suddenly we see them at 15. And I've always felt as I, as I looked at everyone's polls and, and, and our own, that I could balance the books. I could see exactly where everyone's going. So the inference in our numbers now is that the smaller players are going to grow significantly relative to what they've been before. So that is, is Herman Mashaba with his ASA. That's the Freedom Front that we know is growing a bit. These are the sort of Patricia de Lille's and 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 Carter and Natal's actually. Look at the map, it's really lighting up in parts of Natal. Uh, so Carter's gonna grow a bit. So that's the the outlook at the moment. ANC about 50, DA in the low twenties, EFF sitting at around 12, 13 and the smaller parties sitting at around 15. What that, in a, at local level, it's interesting, and but not terribly important. Its importance is what this is telling us. What it's telling us is that the ANC in 2024 has a big problem um, and could lose its majority. And that that's not because the DA is hammering it. I mean, it's hammering itself more than being hammered by the DA. The cliche on South Africa was, you know, if the ANC loses, it must be because someone else got really big and strong and crushed the ANC. What's happening is that many of the political players are disappointing their supporters. So ANC supporters would be disappointed at this. DA supporters, I think, are feeling a bit disappointed about, about how things have gone. EFF supporters might be a bit disappointed that this party in a country where half of people don't have a job and three quarters of young people struggles to sort of break well above that 10% mark. So these smaller parties come up and they become kingmakers, therefore in future coalitions. And this, I think, is, is absolutely where we're headed now. So on, on a local level, we've said, if you look at Natal, that, that you're forming these kind of coalitions. At a national level, the, the odds now are that South Africa won't have a party by 2024 that has a majority. You're going to have to build coalitions to govern it. So at the top, it's going to become very unstable. At the bottom, also becoming very unstable. It's the enclave, a fragmentation scenario writ large. And I think the trends in its favor are so powerful and overwhelming that we can be relatively confident this is something that will become a feature of our lives through the next decade. Have you got any indication of the big metros? And how are they going to break? And I ask this because we had Herman Mashaba. We're doing a series with the three most likely next mayors of Johannesburg, for instance, which is quite a battleground uh, political area right now. Herman Mashaba is very confident he's going to win Action SA. Um, uh, we, I'm not sure about the other two parties because we haven't spoken to them yet. In fact, we're talking today uh, to, the, uh, to the ANC mayor, and then we'll have the DA as well. Is, is Herman dreaming? I don't know. Our samples aren't really big enough to give us precision on a metro. Um, but I don't think Herman's dreaming. I think you're going to see him get a couple of points uh, in, in Johannesburg. And I don't think the DA gets a majority in Johannesburg. Cape Town should be DA. Port Elizabeth is, is, is swinging, I'm told, in the direction of the DA. But you never know why people tell you these things. So you'll tell Alec Hock that you heard from that. Well-placed source that victory is imminent 
but I think that's plausible that that victory is imminent there. The the trend that that will play out, regardless of who's completely in charge or not, is that amongst urban voters, better educated voters, more middle class voters, emerging middle class voters, younger voters, what you're describing is a city. The ANC has got a particularly serious problem. And and overall, across the metros, I think if you did all the metros, you'll see the ANC below 50% now. And it's lost that. And I don't think it can win it back again. Uh, and its its strength starts to to be more in, in older, poorer, less well-educated, more rural communities. And there is a, there's a, a parallel of sorts there to what befell ZANU-PF. But it's also the pattern in Zimbabwe. That, that ZANU's defeat, it should have lost, of course it cheated and got back in, but, but ZANU's defeat was first written in the urban, middle class, more established uh, voting blocs. And then it, it, um, it, it would spread later. That's just power base was rural. ANC is showing a similar trend to us. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business, business banks on us. Standard Bank, it can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. I'm Justin Roberts of BizNews, and with me for today's Food Retailer Insights is Protea Capital Management founder Jean-Pierre Fister. Picompare released interim results yesterday. They were the first food retailer to announce results covering the impact of the July riots. What stood out for you in these results? Yes, Justin, an interesting set of results from Picompare. Um, I think firstly, as you mentioned, quite a big impact from the riots. I mean, almost a a billion rand of sales between the riots and the, the lockdowns and the fact they couldn't sell alcohol for the full period. So quite a big knock in the period that was abnormal. That's the first thing that um, stood out for me. The second thing that stood out for me was that the top line growth, even though Pick and Pay themselves said that they were relatively pleased with it, is still quite low. And if you compare, you know, top line growing at, say, 4% versus cost inflation that I think Pick and Pay might have a challenge in the next few years to keep at low single digits, that for me is a bit of a concern. They did say they think they could save up to 3 billion rand over the next few years when it comes to their costs, and they're, they're doing a lot like setting up a new distribution facility in Joburg. But longer term for me, the, uh, I'm, I'm concerned if you think about generally a higher inflation environment that might be the situation in the next few years, uh, if a retailer is not growing their top line strongly, I think problems could come down the line. Is pick and pay becoming somewhat less relevant? They used to fall just under Woolies in terms of quality, but with the likes of the new rebranded Checkers gaining traction and Spa also being a like-for-like -like competitor, it seems like a lot of choice for the consumer in the subsector, if you can call it that. I agree. I, I definitely think that competition has heated up in the food retail sector. Um, pick and pay are, are almost trying to fight fights on all fronts. Uh, they are competing with clicks for the biggest loyalty program. If you um, think about their smart shopper program, they're trying to compete with Woolies. If you think about the more premium products and the, the own label that they have, uh, trying to address high quality products, they're trying to 
compete with ShopRite at the lower end with Boxer um, and, and really giving good value for the clients uh, at that end of the market. Um, so, so they're doing a lot at, at the same time. They're also trying to centralize the distribution, something that ShopRite did years ago. Um, so I am concerned that they're doing something of everything. Oh, and then lastly, they still have a significant franchise base. So if you compare that to, say, a spa that has a, a guild that it's called, not too dissimilar to a franchise base, Pick and Pay is also both doing a directly owned store model and a franchise model. So, so there's a lot of balls in the air for, for Pick and Pay. Oh, sorry, I'll add one more to the mix, Justin, and that is that, you know, they've got operations across Africa, in Zambia and Zimbabwe, for instance. So you've seen ShopRite pull back from Nigeria. Uh, Pick and Pay is still committed to, to some of those African operations. So um, I think Peter Boone, the new CEO, has had uh, the last few months to really have a good look at Pick and Pay. And I think part of his challenge going forward is also to try and see where he's going to focus. Because for me, it does seem like Pick and Pay is, is doing a lot at the moment at the same time. Buffett and Munger often refer to this characteristic of an investable business called a moat, a competitive advantage that keeps competitors away. Analysts and investors often refer to the big tech names of the U.S. as companies with deep moats. But taking this back locally... Would you say Woolies differentiated or superior product offering to the rest of South Africa's food retailers gives it this moat? I think it does. I mean, it's got, as they call it, share of mind. If you want premium food, if you are hosting and gathering at home or you want really good quality frozen meals, um, chances are you're going to go to Woolies. I know that uh, Checkers, uh, as part of the ShopRite group, is snapping at their heels with their premium products. I think they've done a great job to also change that perception of Checkers being a more mid-tier brand to saying they have premium products. But for me, Willys is still the standout. And if they are the standout, if they have share of mind, it means they have pricing power. And we know a lot of people quite often on social media are complaining about the high prices of Willys food, but these people seem to go back. <laughs> I'm one of those people. So I think the quality makes up for the fact that they are priced at a premium. That gives them a moat, it gives them pricing power, and as long as they can keep that uh, quality space and dominate it at the top end, I do think uh, they will protect their moat and keep on generating above average returns, yes. And a company like ShopRite, a company that has broad access to the lower LSM consumers through a number of different bands, does this constitute a moat or are there simply too, too little barriers to entry? It is a moat in my mind, but it's a different moat. It's, it's a scale moat. Uh, if you sell to the bottom end, chances are you're selling to people that are more price sensitive, that compare your products more carefully to other products, and that means you need to have a lower pricing point. And the only way in a sort of commodity business or, or a, a business that's very price competitive to have a competitive advantage is to be the lowest cost producer. And in retail, that normally means you need to be the biggest. So your scale gives you logistics power. And it brings down your cost per unit in terms of delivering it to the client. And ShopRite has that at the lower end. So I do think it's a moat, but it's not a priceless-led moat or quality-led moat in the case of Woolies. It's a lower-cost type moat. And ShopRite, in that sense, does have a moat, although it's quite different to the Woolies moat. Each food retailer has exposure, however big or small, out of South Africa and overseas. Spas diversified into Ireland and Switzerland at face value, it seems like two arbitrary destinations to diversify into. What's the thesis here? 
And two smaller uh, countries have also gone into is Poland and Sri Lanka. So it's quite interesting, uh, the countries that SPAR have looked at. Um, look, I, I think the SPAR management team have done really well to see that their growth in South Africa was going to be muted going forward. They wanted to expand internationally, but they saw the likes of, of Willys and the pain that the, they went through with the David Jones acquisition in Australia, and they wanted to do it in a lower risk way. So through the SPAR head office in the Netherlands, they got in touch with other spa guilds in other countries, so they know the model. It's not a different brand. It's not a different model. Uh, they know these businesses well. Um, and therefore, I like their international expansion more versus the expansion of some other food, food retailers like Willie's. Uh, or if you go years back, Pick and Pay also tried to expand uh, aggressively internationally. So uh, it, is a, it is a lower risk model. Uh, there's been some swings and roundabouts. Uh, Switzerland was weak, and then all of a sudden, uh, did very well in the last year or so. Poland, they've got some issues there. Ireland has been performing well. So um, I think the jury is still out. But at this stage, it does look like their international expansion has been more successful than other food retailers. You touched on Willie's disastrous acquisition of David Jones. There's been lots of calls from analysts and investors alike to spin off Willie's food division into a separate business. Would you be in favor of this? I don't see how that can practically happen. If I just think of the Willie's food um, stores that I sometimes frequent, many of them are integrated or adjacent to a clothing store. And quite often, the food business, because it attracts a lot of feet, is at the back of the store. So it might have an exit straight into a mall, but the entrance quite often is via the clothing business. So from a practical point of view, there's a lot of space of Willie's stores where the food and the clothing business are quite integrated. And they might share a storage facility at the back of the uh, store as well. So I don't see uh, the split of the businesses. It, it might look good on a spreadsheet, but I think practically uh, I would not expect a, a split of the food and the clothing business, principally because of the sharing of space. Talking about spreadsheets, I know investment analysis for the large part or predominantly is quantitative in nature. People like yourself use a range of models and inputs to determine a value for a business. These food retailers are covered by a variety of analysts and fair value as determined by these quantitative models will fall within a similar range per asset manager. Do the qualitative elements that we've spoken about in this interview, the consumer trends and habits one picks up are actually going to the shopping center become more important when choosing a long-term investment in the sector? I do believe it does. And that's why we combine the quantitative with the qualitative in our quantumental process. So we also have those models you, you speak about. But quite importantly, we think about things that can't be captured in the models. So like you say, changing trends going forward or the quality of management. I've been really impressed with Peter Engelbrecht coming out of the shadow of Whitey Basson and the decisions he's made, like pulling out of Nigeria, for instance. Those things are not that easy to catch on a spreadsheet in advance of those types of decisions. Uh, or how successful the new uh, Checkers 6060 app has been. Uh, it's quite difficult to model that. But if you just think qualitatively, uh, uh, ShopRite are doing a lot of good things. So, yes, we do think the qualitative is important. Looking out for trends and future changes and disruption to industries are important because you can't always capture those on a spreadsheet. Lastly, Jean-Pierre, your pick in the sector. Well, of all the uh, ones that you mentioned, I think uh, SPA is the least overvalued. <laughs> of all the other food retailers, we're actually scratching our heads and not seeing a lot of value. Um, so SPA looks good, and after SPA, I would say ShopRite more on the qualitative basis because quantitatively it does look expensive to me. But if you have a long-term investment horizon, I think uh, ShopRite is qualitatively well-placed. 
the other field rate trials for me are on the expensive side. The Mayor of Joburg, Mr. Mpo Moirani, thank you very much for joining us as we interview some of the candidates who are vying for your position to run the city of Joburg, the biggest city uh, in the country at the moment, but a city not with uh, a few challenges, but plenty of them. And you have been in that position for a few months now, but you've also been an MMC. So you are familiar with the challenges of Joburg. What, to your mind, are the priorities for anybody who wants to run Joburg? What should they focus on? Well, um, actually, I've been on the job for a few days now. I started on the 1st of November. It was caused by the untimely death of uh, my predecessor, um, Mayor Matongo, who died in a car crash. May he soul rest in peace. To come back to your answer, uh, Bratim, we have a lot of problems that we are trying to sort. The main one being the electricity supply in the city of Johannesburg. Uh, in particular, in our townships that are serviced by ESCOM, uh, such as Soweto, Orange Farm, Ivory Park, Deep Slot. And to a larger extent, we also uh, have Santin that is supplied by ESCOM. We have been in negotiations with ESCOM that we take uh, these areas over. Um, we started the negotiations uh, last year, July. And uh, fortunately, Last week, uh, we have agreed on signing a memorandum of understanding uh, to kickstart negotiations on the transfer of these areas to the city. That's the first point that we need to fix. Then we have our own uh, infrastructure, electricity infrastructure problems, which uh, we are fixing. Uh, yesterday, we had one of our substations, Robert Sam, uh, exploding. Uh, we have four transformers there. To explore that, fortunately, we are now moving the load to the other two, which we keep them as a spare in the case of emergency. Our infrastructure is old. Uh, we need uh, to invest on our infrastructure. With Stobek uh, Water, uh, which is the entity that is responsible for making sure that this clean water at all times, there's a um, we fix best pipes, and we deal with block sewer. So it is a challenge because also the infrastructure is very old. Now we have a project uh, of pipe replacement uh, in Jobegota, which needs a lot of money. Uh, we have started it. It will take some time because of the limited budget we have. Um, we believe that we need to start what we call Johannesburg Infrastructure Agency, where we will bring all infrastructure projects under the agency so that the agency can be able to raise funds uh, to deal with the infrastructure backlog. We have a backlog of about uh, $150 billion, uh, over the next 10 years. Uh, we believe that um, as a city, we need to make sure that uh, if you want to run a successful Metro like Johannesburg, you need to bring investment of about so, 150 billion over the next well, 10 years only okay. for its infrastructure. 150 billion for infrastructure, but how much are you spending at, um, at this time on infrastructure well, on an annual basis? I mean, besides the well, backlog that um, you mentioned. Yeah, we currently have uh, a budget. This financial year budget is 76 billion. Uh, of that six, 76 billion, only 8.6 billion. Uh, it's meant for refurbishment and build new 
plants. I, I say that for the city of Johannesburg, it's very little. Uh, if we get that uh, eight, between 8 to 10 per annum, we won't get to fix all the things that we need to fix. The system sure. will collapse. Yeah. So we need to go out and uh, bring investment and form partnerships with private companies to build our infrastructure, to refurbish our infrastructure. Let's talk about uh, the point you raised earlier on, that you want to bring the uh, supply of electricity to Soweto, for instance, under the uh, control of the city of Joburg. How, how are you going to uh, take over the debt that is being owed by the residents of Soweto to ESCOM? It's a substantial amount of money. How are you going to resolve that? Where is the money going to come from? ESCOM says uh, the people of Soweto owe... 7.5 billion and uh, the city has no 7.5 billion to pay for the debt and uh, I think we've made it clear but we say working together with ESCOM ourselves as the city uh, we then need to bring a national treasury and national copter uh, to assist on how we can resolve the issue of the debt we believe that um, the debt uh, can be written off it has been written off uh, in the past, um, ESCOM wrote off 6.4 billion around 2003 and 2004. They wrote 5 billion in the last financial year. So we believe sitting together, we can find a way that we write off the 7.5 billion because the city does yeah. not have that money. Well, of course, uh, and ESCOM, but we need uh, to come up with a plan. So, us working together. Sure, you know, I, I, I hear your point, but I want to raise the point that as much as they can be t- talk about uh, debt write-offs. On the part of ESCOM, ESCOM will also say that they are heavily indebted to what more than 450 billion rands, and they need money to balance their books or to service their debt, you know, and 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 make themselves a, a viable entity. As we know, um, the uh, financial problems that they have translate into load shedding throughout the throughout the country, and so they need they need to make new investments. I, I wonder how they'll be going about that. Well, I'm not sure where the uh, 450 billion that uh, they were, how they were going to fix it. Uh, but all I know that uh, we, as the city, we pay ESCOM almost a billion per month for the bulk supply that we're getting for them. Mm. So uh, we pay on time. Uh, they must make sure that all the municipalities pay on time, and so that they can recover their money. It's it's a business. Otherwise, they will, the the system will collapse if they don't collect debt. So we are saying that uh, taking over the 7.5 billion into our books is impossible. But we we want to work with ESCOM to assist ESCOM and see how we can resolve this debt. Sure. Uh, we need to bring national treasure. For any debt write-off, you need national treasure approval. That's why we want to engage national treasury. Even on their books, when they write it off, the board can approve, but national treasury has to give a go-ahead uh, with the Minister of Finance. It's not you wake up tomorrow, the debt is written off. We want to start on a clean slate. Uh, we want to roll out smart smart meters in Soweto. We want to bring energy mix uh, for people who cannot afford electricity. We want to build bring solar. We mm. are planning on with consultation with community on building a solar plant at Avalon Cemetery as a pilot. 
Avalon has uh, 179 hectares of land. Uh, we believe that if we build a solar plant, uh, it can give us between 60 and 80 megawatts, sure. which can uh, provide electricity to 60,000 RTP houses. So we have a plan on how we're going to do it. And when we take over storage, we're just not going to rely on electricity only. We will put more renewable energy, which we believe would be a solution to the people of Sowetu, especially those who cannot afford to pay for their electricity. I always say that when you go to Sowetu, you can't treat them the same. A person or a family living in Zondi and a family living in Deep Group Extension, you can't treat them the same. There are those poor families that um, do not have money, that rely on the, you know, um, on Sasa Grant. We want to assist them. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week's edition comes from New Haven, Connecticut, home of Yale University, and of my guest this week, Paul Kennedy. Professor Kennedy's author of a classic work called The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, which dealt with 500 years of world history from 1500 to 2000. I read the book when it first came out in 1987, and it set me thinking about a crucial question. How long will America's period as the world's most powerful nation last? And that question seems even more important now, with the rise of China. So I was delighted to be able to visit Paul Kennedy in Yale and to hear his thoughts. What does history tell us about the current struggle between America and China? In 1945, President Harry Truman of the U.S. announced the surrender of Japan and hailed the beginning of a new era. It was the spirit of liberty which gave us our armed strength and which made us invincible in battle. We now know that that spirit of liberty, the freedom of the individual, and the personal dignity of man are the strongest and toughest and most enduring forces in all the world. The end of the Second World War left the United States as by far the largest economy in the world. But it left Britain close to bankruptcy and unable to sustain the burdens of a global empire. In 1947, India gained its independence. August the 15th, 1947, Independence Day for India. In London, the flags of the new Indian Union flutter over the headquarters of India and Pakistan. An era has ended, a new epoch begins. A subcontinent larger than the whole of Europe becomes two self-governing dominions within the British Commonwealth of Nations. Two years later, Mao Zedong announced the foundation of the People's Republic of China in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. Today, both India and China are now seen as rising superpowers in their own right. Paul Kennedy is about to start work on a new edition of The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, which will deal in particular with the extraordinary rise of China. So I asked him how he looks at the rivalry between Washington and Beijing. One of the, perhaps the biggest consideration I have to put in this revision, at least of the reflections on the rise and fall, is how much to devote and how much to focus upon the rise of China. It is the single biggest thing in terms of power shifts and production shifts over the past 30 years. 
it has impacts we can see already on the way in which initial naval power balances are shifting in the Western Pacific and Southeast Asia and will presumably continue to shift when we look at the size of the projected Chinese Navy in the next 10 years. And the challenge of turning a last two second edition is actually quite exciting me. Yeah, I can imagine. And the economic weaknesses that you spoke about in the late 80s, people were very focused on the deficit and so on. Looking at the economics, are we talking about relative decline? In other words, simply China's got five times the population. And if they get up to a certain per capita level, they will be in you know a much larger economy. Or are there also deep weaknesses in the American economy that or perhaps it's some combination that is is sapping their power. This has to be the double-headed argument. It's not just that if a country which has four to five times your population manages through its own efforts to get to a standard of living only half of yours, they're still outweighing you two to one in terms of crude measures of GDP. But it's a qualitative and technological shift as well as that which is significant, the way in which they are moving into very significantly artificial intelligence systems, they're moving into space, they're designing in the first stages of their military naval growth, weapons of the asymmetric power, the one which isn't as capable and as strong as the other, but they're going to have weapon systems which reduce that gap. And uh, they're building up an enormous reserve of foreign currency holdings, such that if it came to some big financial crash across the Pacific, they may be more easily able to weather that with four to six to $11 trillion in their war cash than the US. But I think it was Burke who said, large powers take an awful long time to die and uh, the Ottoman Empire is probably what he was thinking of. The United States has itself an enormous amount of indigenous strengths along with its inherent and in some ways increasing weaknesses on on socioeconomic side. And that you can have a flourishing domestic policy, but still not be able to carry out a vast array of overseas obligations. Another little anecdote. Right now, when I get from my London literary agent, six monthly or yearly reports of sales of royalties on various of my books in different languages across the globe, I would say that the rise and fall of a great power's royalties coming in from the Chinese edition is more than any other individual item coming in. And probably the super-produced British naval mastery in Chinese edition is also something which sells there more than it does in Angela Merkel's Germany or uh, in, in Italy or anything else like that. The Chinese are looking at historical lessons. Yeah, that's very interesting. Just to finish that, you know, one thing that struck me again, looking at the thesis you set out, was that when the Soviet Union collapsed shortly after you wrote that book, a lot of it was to do with economic decay, the thing you're focused on. But there was also kind of social and political decay going on. And I wondered whether, to put it bluntly, the election of Donald Trump 
the internal divisions in the United States, the challenges to American democracy, are now at least as big a threat to America's great power status as these indices of economic and military might. So in in measuring the relative strengths and weaknesses of your number one power vis-a-vis the challenges, I think it is the case that one just cannot total up the number of machine guns in your U.S. Marine Corps. You cannot total up the number of destroyers and say that is the effective comparative measure of power. You have to look at some of these other non-military maybe in some cases, non-material measures, that is to say, is the social fabric of the society bearing up, is the political leadership representative or authoritarian or whatever it is, demonstrably effective or is it fading? Is it throwing up uh, eccentric Roman emperor or American president who by misjudged actions, in some cases sheer stupidities or prejudices, could weaken what otherwise was an inherently still relatively strong system. To what extent does the political and social dimension, if properly balanced and coherent and wise, enhance the raw material, economic and military resources, and to what extent could they weaken them if, if the society is torn internally, if there is a paralysis in the political voting systems, if there is a distraction by looking inwards so that those in power just do not enjoy the freedom of time to be able to look at the world and do proper reassessment of it, if there is folly at the top, such as was shown in the four-year presidency of Mr. Trump, to what extent, despite the boastfulness that he made America great and number one, to what extent does the folly weaken the longer-lasting power and position of the United States? Impossible question to answer, but what's your sense? Of course it can, but it also means that unless the damage wrought by the acts of folly led to permanent damage, then the replacement of folly by sensible and coherent and balanced two or three presidencies, maybe you'd need that much, could lead to some degree of recovery of a relative position. And the final thing is that you could focus too much on simply the strengths and weaknesses of the number one power in your spotlight and not be looking at what's happening to the contenders. There was a great deal of attention given to the weaknesses and decay and challenges of the United States in the 1980s, sometimes to the degree that you thought the Russians were 10 feet tall and he didn't look at some of the developing weaknesses and challenges which were happening on the other side. And indeed Japan at the same time, there were people saying Japan would be number one. Yes, so if you're looking, concentrating on that, if you're looking at Japan as number one economically or the USSR as number one in strategic missiles, rising red fleet, etc., you might 
be missing the fact that the other side also has its weaknesses. So the very interesting thing that we are now looking at is if we're going to do a scrutiny of the strengths and weaknesses of the American Republic as it goes through this third decade of the 21st century, should we not be doing an equally searching look if we can because of the way the other side disguises a lot of this? Should we be doing as, as much as we can a searching scrutiny of the weaknesses as well as the strengths of this rising Chinese number two? That was Paul Kennedy in Yale, ending this edition of the Rackman Review. Thanks very much for joining me, and I hope you'll be able to join us again next week. Well, thanks for being with us this evening, and indeed, through the whole of this week, we'll be back again with you on Monday from the Biz News team of yours truly, Alec Hogg. Justin Rowe Roberts, Jared Neves, and our sound engineer, Dudu Masuku. Don't forget FMR tomorrow night with Carrie Adams talking about all things you can tipple. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.